0: Today on the Almond Journey podcast.
1: I don't know that people understand how much food security is dependent on California agriculture. It's so important globally that we be able to continue to farm.
0: Almond Grower and Almond Board of California Director Christine Gemperly joins the show. Welcome back to the Almond Journey podcast brought to you by the Almond Board of California. On the show, we discover how growers, handlers and other stakeholders are making things work in their operations to drive the almond industry forward. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich, and I get to travel up and down the valley virtually in most cases uh, to feature the leaders who are finding innovative ways to improve their operations, connect with their communities and advance this almond industry. Today, we head to Ceres, California, to visit with almond grower Christine Gemperly. Christine and her brother Eric started their almond operation back in 1997 which includes 135 acres on two farms, one near Ceres and the other in the Newman-Gustine area. Christine and Eric, as a brother-sister partnership, do all the work themselves. They are second-generation Central Valley farmers. Their father immigrated from Switzerland and began farming in the 1960s. Christine says her strong partnership with her brother, Eric, is based on mutual respect and the desire they both have to outwork each other. She takes the lead on all of the books and he handles the equipment. She joked that uh, she likes to break the equipment and he likes to fix it. (laughs) But in today's episode, which was recorded at the Almond Conference last year, Christine shares how she finds the balance between conventional farming practices and ecological approaches. Her early experiences with whole orchard recycling and a new irrigation system for more efficient water and fertilizer use and her efforts with cover crops and habitat for pollinators and monarch butterflies. She starts things off with a little bit of background about how her family began farming in the Central Valley.
1: Well, my dad was an almond farmer. He's an immigrant from Switzerland. And in the 60s, him and his brother started a poultry and almond operation. My dad did all the almonds. We actually grew up in a house in the country, but because Like us, they had ranches all over the place. We didn't actually live on one of the ranches. And actually, that was kind of good because there were poultry ranches as well, and they smell bad.
0: (laughs) 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 That's okay. And and so, wait, at that time when you were growing up, your dad did farm almonds.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, he's still – farmers never stopped farming, but now he's like, you know, in his late 80s, so he's kind of retired. Um, Still gives advice, though.
0: Yeah. And then do you still do the poultry as well?
1: Uh, No, actually, um, my cousin Rich, his brothers operate that poultry part of the operation. Yeah. And my brother and I are kind of just doing our separate almond thing.
0: Okay, cool. And uh, did you have a sense growing up that you wanted to continue to do that, that you wanted to farm?
1: no, I wasn't going to be a farmer at all. I mean, I knew I was a total science nerd and I was going to go and do biology. And so I went to UC Santa Cruz and I got a degree in biology and then I worked for the forest service. And then I somehow got into fisheries and I got a research assistantship to go to Utah State, you know, full ride, who's going to turn that down, to get a degree in fisheries. And then I worked in fisheries for a couple of years right in the valley working on Chinook salmon and the Stanislaus and Tuolumne rivers. And at that time, I was trying to do both farming and fisheries. And at some point, I had to make a call, like, I can't do it all and have a family. And so I was like, nope, farming, whole hog, I'm in.
0: Good for you. Well, I'm sure you can bring a really unique perspective then of, you know, seeing both the conservation side of, you know, wanting to be involved in fisheries and, and wanting to be involved on kind of the biology side, but also trying to farm. And how do you, this is a big question. I don't know how to ask it. How do you reconcile those two things between like farming, which is obviously we need to control nature to give us what we want, um, but also trying to preserve and conserve nature as well?
1: Yeah, it's not really hard for me because I, you know, I look at everything from a biological kind of research point of view. And I look at everything from sort of an ecosystem sort of level. And how I do it is I'm I'm looking to find that balance in my operation between, you know, what can I get out of nature and these natural processes? And how can I enhance my farming by some of these farming practices that we do, whether it's like conventional or regenerative? I, You know, there's all these new terms now. And I like to say I'm integrated conventional.
0: Integrated conventional. Okay. I, may,
1: I made up that term. So I'm, I'm thinking like, maybe it'll be useful someday. Yeah,
0: maybe it'll we'll catch on. Right. Well, so what does that look like from a practices standpoint? You know, where, where do you notice that you bring your expert? expertise in biology uh, to farming?
1: Well, on a practical, like daily level in farming, let's look at cover cropping. So that's something I really got into. I did a lot of plant sciences as a biologist. And so as I'm going through these years of figuring out how to best use cover cropping in my system, I'm looking at it from like, oh, well, how does it affect competition of weeds? right? How does it actually affect the populations of insects and what are those populations and how does that play into how I have to manage the bad insects in my orchard or maybe I don't have to manage them so much anymore because those insect populations are doing part of it for me as the cover cropping is helping to manage some of my problematic weeds. So it's... it's. It's a lot to think about sometimes and to wrap your head around. But, you know, that's what those long hours on the tractor are for. I think about this stuff like all the time. I listen to music. I listen to podcasts. And I I think. And I, I call it Tractor Thoughts by Christine Gamberley.
0: There you go. You, you need a podcast yourself. <laughs> you need to share, share some of these thoughts.
1: Yeah. Well, I maybe mean, what else are you going to do? You're on a tractor for eight hours.
0: Right, right. So, I, I think the way you put it, if I'm remembering right, you said something about like, you know, get what you need from the farm, but also create like balance. And I, the way I understood that was like ecological balance where you can.
1: Right. Right. Something. It's really, once something gets out of whack, it is hard to bring it back in, like reel it back in. I mean, I'm dealing with that right now in a redevelopment project um, on the west side. And, you know, the way we farmed it was super conventional. And I felt like at the end, like, I think my soil is kind of dead, um, and we completely need to change how we do things. And so, with our redevelopment, and we're using a lot of grants, as many as we can get, to put in like the best irrigation system, in order to really like pinpoint irrigation, but also bringing in soil practices like compost. You know, I'm trying to energize that soil again and cover cropping i need to get organic matter in there and then i did whole orchard recycling which was you know that's a another thing to stack on it all
0: how did that go well we
1: just planted the trees in november and we kind of knocked it out of the park on timing we got a little bit of rain before planted those trees and then got that first good november rain so couldn't have timed it any more beautifully
0: Nice. That's great. And you mentioned, you know, irrigation system. What's different about the irrigation system now that you've rethought it?
1: It is a dual system. I mean, not cheap. So for the first two years, we're going to be using micros that have this very tiny little circle that just do the base of the tree. And so each irrigation, you know, we just have to hardly put the water on at all. And even though we can't, you know, really water, say, a cover crop, We can use winter rains to get that cover crop in, Um, but the nice thing about that is during the first two years during the summer, I'm not going to be watering any weeds. And so my herbicide applications are probably going to be pretty minimal and isolated to those little spots around the trees. Um, So it helps with that. It also helps pinpoint where that fertilizer goes if I'm using my fertigation system.
0: Cool. And then the, when do the cover crops come in? So you, you did a whole orchard recycling. When did you do the whole orchard recycling?
1: A, a year ago. A year ago. Okay. Yeah. So we we like to follow it for a whole year. I would like to experiment with following it for longer and maybe leasing the land for a couple of years. I wonder if there's this point where you can actually go back to quote unquote virgin land, <laughs> you know, because yeah. we all talk about putting an orchard on virgin land because they do so well. Um, but you know that's something you know that would have to get involved with a researcher to do. But you never know
0: to find out how long does it take before yeah it's going.
1: yeah exactly. And you know what are the economics of that along the way, especially if you you know you have a, a good person to lease from, and maybe there's some benefits to the soil from leasing to a different crop for a couple years, having something else in there. And not only that, I mean that's actually great for ag diversity within the valley. And so maybe we break up some of our almond production and maybe it's good for our markets as well. It's not like we're going out of the business, but we're just taking some offline for a few years.
0: Right. And building the soil up at the same time.
1: Exactly. For a better, more productive orchard down the road.
0: So in this uh, redevelopment you just did, you you planted in November, got good rain. Did you already plant cover crops there too? Or when do those come
1: Well, out? We, we're still waiting for the drip line to be because that's the other part of the irrigation system is we're putting in double line drip. So after in probably the second and the third year, we're going to start transitioning from those small sprinklers to the drip line. And so that drip line is going to actually going forward allow for very efficient Injection of fertilizer, so I can probably use less because I'm not going to be losing a lot, you know, to volatization because it's actually going to be subsurface. Keeping my fingers crossed that that is going to work because I got a special irrigation line that gophers don't like to eat and it has copper in it, so the roots don't intrude. So they sold me that. So top I of the line. I, I top of the line. And the other thing is, so once those trees are bigger, those sprinklers, micro sprinklers, now I'll take a tab off of them. And they'll actually go to greater coverage and so when i need to water in a future cover crop i do have that ability if i need to actually use those micro sprinklers to keep dust down i have that ability so it allows me like all these different options and how to use my water based on the job at hand and what's going on in the orchard and what i'm trying to grow
0: yeah wow and so you're once you get that irrigation then depending on when it is, you'll be able to, to plant cover crops. Is that the idea?
1: Yeah. My experiences with cover cropping is I put them in with my very last irrigation that I'm doing on the trees anyways. And that's usually what gets me to the winter rains. I almost never have to give cover crops water just for them. That's the point. I mean, that's my objective.
0: Yeah. And what have you noticed works well in terms of the types of cover crops? Did you just use kind of a diverse mix or do you have that I've used it all dialed in,
1: <laughs> <laughs> because I wanted to get it dialed in. And so my, my favorite thing is to do half mustard, half clover. And so the first thing I do in the fall with that last irrigation is do half of the rows, every other row, mustard. And then I leave the other rows open for as long as I need to leave them open to get all my fall work done. So mummy shaking, because I don't want to, once I plant that cover crop, I don't really want to go down there and disturb it if I don't have to. And so the other half is the clover, because no matter when you plant clover, it will not be blooming before the almond bloom, right? It'll always bloom after. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. And then... I don't know. Sometimes I've planted it as late as January because that's when we got our mummy shaking done and swept and mowed and all that. And after all that's done, everything goes into the ground: (laughs) the chips, the mummies, the seed, all goes in. And then by April, I've I've got clover blooming, and that's actually when the mustard is going down. So then you know any pollinators in the orchard get to transition. And I just kind of have this gradual mow down of everything, and by mid June, usually everything's mowed down.
0: And the, the mustard will will bloom before the almonds. Oh yeah. Okay. yeah.
1: They'll be blooming, and it'll be blooming in January, which is nice because if your beekeeper brings his bees in, it's the thing that wakes them up, and so they're foraging for a couple weeks, and they have forage, and that gets the queen laying eggs. And if the queen's laying eggs, then your nurse bees are working, and they need food, and that's why the pollinators are going out to do what they do to feed those baby bees.
0: That is cool. I guess I I, I didn't realize that, that. So the mustard kind of wakes them up and gets them going and gets everything working. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So for you, do you look at it as kind of conducting little science experiments on your farm? I mean, are you collecting data? And what's that process look like for you?
1: Well, with some things like my irrigation, I actually do keep data sheets and spreadsheets. You know, it's not like I go out there and do like insect surveys. (laughs) I, I would love to, but there aren't enough hours in the day. And I guess a lot of it is anecdotal or observational. I mean, over time, you just know like, yeah, you know, I didn't actually have to put as much herbicide on this year or I didn't have to go through and spray again. I got away with just spot spraying. And we do keep a farm journal, actually. My brother is really awesome about keeping this farm journal. Well, every day we wrote down what we did. You know, if we sprayed something, we wrote down what we sprayed or um, what job we did, you know, about how many hours it took. It goes back to like 1998 when we started working with somebody on this irrigation platform. He's like, well, do you have records of that? My I'm like, yeah, I got them. <laughs> I got them all. <laughs> and they were, it was funny. They were reading through the notes because sometimes it would say something like, my wife had a baby. <laughs> <You know? laughs> <More professor, laughs> yeah. Well, he did that that day. He was at the hospital, you know, because he writes down everything yeah. in the farm journal. If he didn't work that day, sometimes he just, you know, writes down what did happen that right. day. Yeah. <laughs> then
0: he knows, like, that's why I yeah. didn't do this. Yeah. And then uh, talk to us about the the Monarch Butterfly thing. So what what is that project? How did it get started? You know, kind of set the scene for us.
1: Well, okay. So I was always working with Billy Sink from Project APISM. And he hooked me up with the Monarch Joint Venture. He's like, hey, they have this. You know, you can get milkweed plugs. You can get seed because they kind of had a relationship, those two organizations, for a while. And so originally I got seed. And when we were doing the orchard redevelopment, there's this little square about – acres between um, my house and the barn. And it was just a pain in the butt to put trees back in. And it was like tight to get tractors around it. I'm like, we're not going to, my brother's like, we're not planting trees here. (laughs) He's like, I am not going to like run equipment around this stupid little square. I'm like, yeah, and I hated raking it too. So if we're not going to do something, I was like, okay, I'm going to make it into just dedicated pollinator habitat. And so through Billy Sink and Monarch Joint Adventure, I was able to get seed for it and put in milkweed plugs. The first week, a year, they, it was a showy-leaved milkweed, and it wasn't actually a great competitor. So the wildflower seeds, even though I staked where each one was, the wildflowers totally outcompeted it. And so the following year, I was like, you know, down at our Gustine place, we have this other type of milkweed that naturally grows there, and it doesn't need any water, and it's just there. I was like, what about that species? And so they had that narrow-leaved milkweed, which we brought in, and I was like, you know, I'm going to throw it up on a levee. So I threw up a levee. And it was kind of close to the irrigation system um, for my garden. And so I ran an extra hose down it with drippers to help it establish the first couple years and planted them and tried to keep the weeds out. And the first year they they did pretty good. And then the second year, they were like giant. They're like taller than me. And in the meantime, all that great wildflower habitat, that's growing. That's going gangbusters. This year was, I would say, the second year of really having a very good habitat there. And I saw. Major changes in the pollinator, the native pollinator composition. I saw like California longhorn bee, I saw bumblebees, I saw these other native bees with like green heads, things I had never even seen before. And I saw monarchs. It was funny. One day, the monarch joint venture, because they come and do surveys and, and look for things, they're people. And <laughs> when they were all here, a monarch butterfly just came flying through the property, like right in front of us Right himself. on cue. Just, just on cue. And I kind of made a joke. I'm like, oh, good. Eric released it at the, the right <laughs> time behind the barn. <laughs> but, but it was funny because they were all chasing this butterfly because they all wanted to get pictures of it, you know, for documentation.
0: And, and for that, I think it's cool to to hear about how pollinators can be so diverse because obviously most of the pollination is going to happen through the honeybees that are coming in, but um, to hear about all these native pollinators that we don't even see anymore, but when you bring something like that back, they show up.
1: Well, and I think they're actually in the orchard itself and with production and during pollination, it actually could be a benefit. Neil Williams out of UC Davis had a study years and years ago where he looked at like the impact, I think, of good native pollination populations during pollination, what they do is the bees have their kind of pattern that they go. And then if you have another different species pollinator in there, it kind of messes up that pattern because they like to just go down the row from tree to tree and stay on the same variety, but you need them to cross pollinate. And so I believe what he found, and I hope I'm super correct in saying that, is that the other species kind of messed up that pattern. So they would do more crossing over between the so varieties, which is what, exactly what we need. Out, yeah. yeah. And so, we're getting better cross-pollination because the bees are sort of being shifted from one side of the row to the other by the native pollinators.
0: Huh. That's really cool. Because, you know, you might think intuitively like, oh, well, they're just competing, but there could be that Really beneficial effect.
1: No, yeah, it's almost like you know they people use the word synergy yeah. a lot. So it's like a synergistic effect.
0: That's really cool. Yeah, and uh, I have a stupid question because I know nothing about monarch butterflies other than they like fly to Mexico and back or something like that. But right. um,
1: it's the tequila down there.
0: It, it must be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, is that just an ecosystem service that you can offer to help that species, or is there is there like a a benefit back to the farm as well?
1: Well, um. It's a great PR story. That's for sure. But I mean, that's not the only reason. I think it is a benefit to the farm because when you're, if you have a healthy population, you know, if you can get monarchs coming through, that probably is an indicator that you have a healthy population for other population, other pollinator species. And that's only to your benefit in the orchard. I mean, who doesn't want to, you know, benefit a species that actually is kind of, you know, it's... It's one of the things we're known for in California and on the coast, having this beautiful, you know, butterfly and species in our state.
0: Yeah. And I think it gets back to what you're saying earlier about balance. Like it's an indication that you're finding that balance.
1: Right. Exactly. And that's a really good point. So we all hear about indicator species and, and maybe it's a good indicator species. Like things are maybe coming into balance in our area. And if we can create these, maybe we find that within our orchards, By creating these little patches, you know, of habitat, and then if you look out broader, we create this mosaic, you know, they talk about for wildlife, wildlife corridors all the time, because they're terrestrial, it has to be all connected, but because butterflies fly, it makes it very easy for this corridor to be actually patches, you know, all over the place. And so maybe it contributes to their survival.
0: Absolutely. And they're they're attracted to the milkweed because that's where they lay their eggs. Is that right?
1: Correct. And it is the caterpillar that eats the milkweed. If you don't have milkweed and you have flowering plants, you're still providing a food source, right? But the milkweed actually helps with the reproductive end of the life cycle.
0: Right. And I understand that you got eggs this year. What?
1: One egg. Well, they found one egg. That doesn't mean. How do you look for
0: a, a, a caterpillar egg or you know a butterfly what? egg? I don't know which one you
1: Those guys found it. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're taking their word for it. I
1: believe me. But, but when the, once they found one, I was going out there and looking. And I was like, can I find one? But I have terrible vision. <laughs> it's, so, it's so hard for me to see anything that's small anymore, even with glasses. So I'm just, you know, I was happy. And I had like five sightings of. Monarch butterflies and one was actually one that must have overwintered. So I was thrilled. And I'm telling you this because I have never seen a monarch butterfly on my property in the entire time that I've lived there before. I've seen swallowtails and painted ladies, but this is the first time I've seen a monarch. So it was kind of substantial.
0: Yes, that's huge. Well, I think, you know, what really stands out to me about about your perspective of your story is like. A lot of times in ag, we kind of want to paint someone into a corner of like conventional and everything that's not conventional is just, you know, greenwashing or not worth considering. Or, you know, you got your like regenerative purists that are like, if you're, you know, using any sort of, uh, and I don't know if they'd say this or I'm creating a straw man here, but it seems like they're saying like, if you're using any sort of input, then you're you're not doing it right, that you're out of balance. But you're kind of really bringing in a very pragmatic view here of like, let's try to get what we need, but create balance.
1: Yeah, I love pragmatism. It's like my religion. (laughs) It's, we shouldn't be judgmental. Either way, right And at the end of the day, we're producing food for a heck of a lot of people in this valley, and it's really important that we keep doing it. you know, during this last drought year, I had climate anxiety, and the one thing that I was really worried about was like, are we going to still be able to feed people? I, I mean, I, was, I felt the responsibility and the weight on my shoulders about feeding people. And I mean, yes, I wanted to personally be able to survive financially and stuff, but I was actually more concerned about the bigger picture, you know, and I was like, I don't know that people understand how much food security is dependent on California agriculture and all of it, almonds, tomatoes, um, leafy greens, strawberries, everything that we grow here. It's so important globally that we be able to continue to farm.
0: Yeah. Well, how do you respond when people who, you know, read the headlines about the amount of water almonds take or, you know, et cetera, how, how do you help them understand why you're so committed to almonds specifically?
1: Well, the first thing I always say is like, you know, you open your refrigerator, everything in there. It's a specialty crop (laughs) and everything takes water to grow. Some take more, some take less, but, you know, we certainly like to have all these options. And the other thing I always like to say, you know, when I talk about almonds, like you're getting more than just an almond and the almond actually gives back quite a bit more than people actually even think. I mean, when you think about The valley, what would the valley look like if we didn't have all these trees taking all the carbon out of the air? And the truth is, most of the carbon in the air is actually from vehicle traffic in the valley and in the Bay Area that just comes and sits in the valley. You know, And we all play a role in that. But our trees in our orchards are actually helping get rid of some of that. And then now that we're whole orchard recycling, we're putting it back on the ground where it needs to be, you know? So we're the the quiet climate heroes <laughs> that nobody knows about, but maybe they'll know soon.
0: Yeah. No, I, I like that. The quiet climate heroes. Well, Christine, what, what didn't we get to that we should make sure we talk about here? I I just enjoyed the conversation. There's a lot of good stuff in there. You, you've you got me thinking about like this whole concept of of um, finding balance, you know, just the... Uh, I think that's just an interesting way to approach things. But and it probably extends beyond just farming. But what else should we talk about?
1: Yeah, we we covered a lot of stuff. Um, you know, one of the things that doesn't often get talked about is the people part of farming and the relationships that we build in this business and how important it is to, you know, have this mutual respect for each other and the way, you know, we each farm, but also learn from each other. I, You know, I. I like the idea of having communities where we share information because I like to see all of us succeed instead of, you know, a hyper competitive world where, you know, I want to be the last man standing. Because in the end, I don't think that's the model that actually ends up helping the industry to survive. You know, I envision a future where, you know, small farmers can survive right alongside big farmers and that we can learn from each other.
0: Well, that is a compelling vision she's casting there and a good place to end today's episode. And I think that future will be a reality with people like Christine leading the charge. Thank you again to her for taking the time for this interview during last year's Almond Conference. And we hope we see you this year at the Almond Conference 2023. It's coming very soon after this episode gets released, December 5th through the 7th at the Safe Credit Union Convention Center in downtown Sacramento. Visit the almonds.com website to register and get more details on that event. We here at the Almond Journey podcast believe everyone in the Almond industry has a story of their own, of how they're making things work on their farms or in their jobs. Hearing voices of industry leaders, people like Christine Gemperly, may spark an idea or connection that you can use for your own journey. And that's why we want to feature these stories of innovation, resilience, and community here on this podcast. I hope you'll come along for the ride by following or subscribing to the show on your podcast platform of choice. And please pass it along to someone else in the industry so we can all share in this Almond journey together.